Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson, and it's good to be with you as always. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, objections, or anything else about this podcast, you can reach out to me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Today we'll be picking up where we left off in the Bible study last time, looking at Genesis 14. I covered a good portion of Genesis 14. As a matter of fact, I think I actually read the entire thing the last time. So you might be asking yourself, why are you going through it again? Well, some of the stuff I'm going to say, I'm going to kind of go over some of the same stuff that I said last time. But there's also going to be a whole lot more new stuff in this as well, including I mentioned in the uh, stuff that I didn't have time to cover last time, but I really wanted to make sure I got in this time. And part of that is from that documentary I told you about, the Exodus Revealed documentary. Some of you have probably seen this before. If not, I think you can find it for free on YouTube. It's Exodus Revealed. But... um, there, there's a couple of portions in there. I was able to find a transcript, and there's part, a, a couple of portions of that I would like to quote um, in regards to some evidence for the Exodus that has been discovered. That I, uh, I only, I only wish that I was doing a video of this so I could show you some of the content, or, or I would even play the audio. But you know, because of copyright, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> but um, there's portions of that I would at least like to quote and share with you because it's um, it's fascinating stuff and proves the validity of Scripture. Unless otherwise noted for this podcast episode, I intend to be reading from the Amplified Bible, Classic Edition, and the Amplified Bible. So I, I kind of had them side by side when I was preparing my notes. And so I'm going to be using those today. So as we begin Exodus 14, I'm going to go back to verse 1. And it says that the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp in front of... I'm probably going to really mess this up. I apologize. In front of Pi-Hahiroth, which translates into English as Mouth of the Gorges. Mouth of the Gorges. Between Migdal and the sea, that would be the Red Sea. Instead, you shall camp in front of Baal Zephron, opposite it by the sea. I probably butchered all those names, but I tried. Pi Roth is the fourth station of the Exodus, meaning the fourth place visited by the Israelites after their exit from Egypt around 1446 B.C. It's there that they awaited an attack by Pharaoh before crossing the Red Sea. Reaching Pi-Hahiroth, I'm really trying to get that. Reaching Pi-Hahiroth involved turning back from the direction they had been traveling and going south, directly opposite of God's preferred destination of Kadesh Barnea at the entrance to the Philistine territory which was done to gain time to boost the morale of the Israelites. 
The, their ultimate destination was the Abrahamic city of Hebron, east of the Philistine capital, Gaza. So they didn't go the nearest path. You remember back from Exodus 13, God said, I'm not going to take you the nearest path because you're going to have to fight the Philistines and I don't think you guys are ready for that. You know, their, their faith, to say it another way, you know, I've, I've all, I'll quote this all the time. Going to God without faith is like going to the mall without money. You don't do anything with God without faith. And they didn't really have the faith for a war at that time, at that particular time. Also, we want to keep in mind, there's about a three-week time frame between the time that they first left Egypt until they crossed the Red Sea. So keep that in mind as we're reading this. This isn't all happening in like a few days or a few hours. The events of Exodus 14 happen over about a three-week period. Well, actually going back to when they first left Egypt, so I guess that covers the previous chapter as well. But from the time they left Egypt until they crossed the Red Sea, there's about a, a three-week time frame there. This wasn't, this didn't happen as fast as you read it. But now continuing on in Exodus 14, it says, For Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Because remember, they aren't going a straight shot. They're going a certain way. And then God says, No, I want you to kind of turn back and go this way. And as Pharaoh's getting reports of what's happening with the Israelites, it leads him to think that they're wandering aimlessly, that they're lost, that they're stuck, whatever. So as Israel approached the Red Sea, Pharaoh received news that they had wandered into a dense wilderness of mountains and canyons. Immediately before crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites were gathered on a beach somewhere outside the borders of Egypt. In fact, the phrase out of Egypt is used concerning their place of encampment several times. So it's safe to say that Pharaoh considered the Israelites to be easy pickings. Obviously, he would turn out to be very, very wrong. But God said to Moses, he said, I will harden, I will make strong and stubborn and defiant Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue the Egyptian, so, so, that, he, so that he will pursue the Israelites. I mean, I apologize. Thus I will be glorified, God says, and honored through Pharaoh and all of his army. God's even honored and glorified through his enemies? Yes, he is, <laughs> much to their dismay. The Egyptians shall know without any doubt and acknowledge that I am the Lord, God said. And they did so. We have talked in previous episodes about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I think I've talked about that twice just in the, since I started up this podcast again. So I won't repeat all that again, except to summarize by saying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart five times before God hardened Pharaoh's heart himself. I used the example in a previous episode of God trying to stand in Pharaoh's way and prevent him from going down a path of his own destructive making. But eventually, Pharaoh hardened his heart enough to the point where God got out of his way and instead got behind him and gave him a shove into his destructive choices. 
So God basically said, okay, you want to do it your way? <laughs> Fine with me. And that's what this means when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's like, okay, I've tried to reason with you. I've tried to get you to see the error of your ways. Now, in a very Romans 1 style fashion, if you go over and read Romans 1 in the New Testament, it's like God is giving Pharaoh over to his own pride and his own destruction. He made the choice for himself, and now God is just confirming that choice by, in a sense, helping Pharaoh harden his heart even more after a certain point. Exodus 14 continues and says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, What is this that we've done? We've let Israel go from serving us. So like all the other times when the plagues would let up and Pharaoh would harden his heart and tighten his grip on the people, and you know he would do that over and over again. But even after they've left, he's determined to make sure that they return and serve their Egyptian masters, as they'd been doing for centuries. And so... Pharaoh harnessed his horses to his war chariots. He took 600 war chariots and all the other war chariots of Egypt with three-man teams of fighting charioteers over all of them. Charioteers, that's a fun word. That's an amplified Bible word for sure. Charioteers. Let's try that one more time. He took 600 chosen war chariots and all the other war chariots of Egypt with three-man teams of fighting charioteers over all of them. That's a, that sounds like a good sports team name for like a basketball or a football team. Who are you guys? We're the fighting charioteers. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so the Lord made hard and strong the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as they left confidently and defiantly. And he pursued the Israelites. The Egyptians chased them in pursuit with all the horses and war chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army. Finally, they overtook them as they camped by the sea, beside, here's that name again, Pihahiroth, the, the mouth of the gorges, remember that one, in front of Baal Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. So the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that, you, that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you treated us this way and brought us out of Egypt? So I talked about this to some degree in my last episode, but it bears repeating. The Israelites displayed both a right and wrong mindset in almost the same breath. And that reminds me of, John, of uh, James chapter 1, verse 8, where James says, For being as he is, a man of two minds, hesitating, dubious, irresolute, he is unstable, unreliable, and uncertain about everything he thinks, feels, and decides. And I feel like that's a good description of the Israelites here. They are displaying 
a double-mindedness in this verse, which led them to their loss in perspective, their loss of trust in the Lord, and the posing of such a ridiculous question to Moses as they did here. Did you bring us out here to die? Think about all the miraculous things they had already seen. I mean, they just saw what was, at the time, the world's most powerful country laid waste by the Almighty God in the power of their invisible God. If they saw the army pursuing them and they were afraid, how easy is it for us to lose perspective and doubt the Lord? How easy is it for you to allow fear to overtake you like an Egyptian army? Up until not too long ago, I probably would have thought I was strong enough in my faith that I would have answered that question differently than I would today. But the Bible warns about that too. It says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Let anyone who thinks he stands and feels sure that he has a steadfast mind and is standing firm and overconfidence, take heed lest he fall into sin. So that's why I asked for prayer in the last episode and do so again today and for the near future. Because at one time, not that long ago, I would have thought I was strong enough in my faith to go, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm ready for anything the devil's going to throw at me. Look at what I've all already overcome, the struggles of the past. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready for whatever he's got. And then, uh, boom. <laughs> oh, I wasn't ready for that. And uh, so, yeah. First uh, Corinthians ten twelve definitely applies in my case. Uh, in the King James, I think that says something such as I, I might be misquoting this a little bit, but I hope not. It says, um, "Beware if you think you stand, lest you fall," it's, or something to that effect. But anywho, the people continued speaking to Moses, saying. Did we not say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? The Israelites are so afraid they would rather go back into slavery, where they've been for centuries, praying for deliverance. Now they, now when things get a little bit tough after three weeks, or about three weeks, they want to go back. And they say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians as slaves than to die in the wilderness. I remember asking in the previous episode if you ever feel like it would be easier to return to your old life of sin. I think I even titled the previous episode, Don't Go Back to Your Egypt. Pharaoh thought the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, but in actuality, God was leading them exactly where they needed to be. They didn't actually start wandering until they took their eyes off of him and looked at their situation through faulty reasoning. So then Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Something that's repeated 365 times in the Bible I've heard from different pastors and commentators. So Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Take your stand. Be firm, confident, and dismayed. 
in the John Cena translation, it would probably say, never give up. But anyway, Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For those Egyptians whom you have seen seen today, you will never see again. Much like Moses said to Pharaoh the last time he spoke to him directly, he said, you will never see me again. Moses said to the Israelites, The Lord will fight for you, while you only need to keep silent. Hold your peace and remain at rest and calm. So, there are two things worth noting here to me, at least for the purposes of this specific study today. The first is Moses' leadership. He seeks to lift the Israelites out of their despair and hopelessness, encourage them, and let them know that all hope is not lost. God's still with them, just as he was when he delivered them from Egypt. And the Lord would fight for them, just as he had been doing up to that point. The second thing was noticing, worth noticing here. Oh, excuse me. Got a bit, bit of a hiccup. Hang on for one second. Let me pause this recording. Okay, I've had a few minutes, and I think I've gotten rid of the hiccups now. So let's uh, pick up where we left off, if we can. Um, I think I've, I was talking about the two things worth noting in that last passage we just read. So the second thing worth noticing is the inner transformation of Moses. <clears throat> now, if you remember back from our earlier study in Exodus... This was the same guy who made so many excuses before the Lord about why he was so unqualified to lead the people out of Egypt. But, 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 but my speech impediment, but, but, but what if the people don't believe me, but, but, but this, but, 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 but that. Now he's the one who is encouraging the people. He's the one telling them to keep their faith. This guy who didn't want to be a leader, didn't think he could do it, thought the people wouldn't believe him, thought that he wouldn't be, um, thought they wouldn't trust him. Now he's the one encouraging them to stay focused on the Lord so that they will see miracles happen in their time. And as we will see from the rest of the chapter, it obviously worked because they were about to see one of the greatest miracles of all time. So the Lord said to Moses, continuing on in the chapter now, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward toward the sea. As for you, the Lord said to Moses, Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites may go through the middle of the sea on the dry land. Now listen to what God says here. And I, behold, I. So he, he makes it clear who's saying this. He wants there to be no ambiguity here. And I, behold, I will harden, make stubborn and strong the hearts of the Egyptians. They shall go into the sea after them. I, meaning God, I will be glorified and honored through Pharaoh and all his army and his war chariots, 
and his horsemen. Then God says, The Egyptians shall know without any doubt and acknowledge. Sounds like <laughs> sounds like Roman Reigns from WWE, the Universal Champion. Uh, yeah, yeah. Acknowledge me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the Egyptians shall know without any doubt and acknowledge that I am the Lord when I am glorified and honored through Pharaoh, through his war chariots and his charioteers. I love that word, charioteers. So there comes this point where God says, okay, that's enough talk. In in the words of Toby Keith, if you remember that old country song from the from the nineties, one of his hits was, "It's time for a little less talk and a lot more action." Well, make no mistake, that's what God was looking for here. And one other thing, I mentioned this when I was doing a Bible study earlier this evening. I was part of a Bible study group um, that I absolutely love being a part of. The people there are wonderful, and it's great. And I'm so glad to be a part of that. It's uh, If any of you guys are listening to this, you guys are great. And I really look forward to it every week. But I, I brought this up during uh, tonight's study. That while it is the Lord who fights for us and wins our battles, that to see Him move in our lives, we must be obedient to whatever instruction He gives us. So... And a good example of that is right here in this in this chapter. There's absolutely no way that Moses or any of the other Israelites, even combined, would have any hope of parting the Red Sea on their own within their own human abilities for them to go across. God had to supernaturally make that happen. However, would it have happened if the people had continued to just sit around complaining, worrying, and refusing to move forward? I would suggest to you that it wouldn't have happened. But, when the Israelites did their part, God did his part. One of my favorite Bible teachers is Joyce Meyer, and one of the things I've heard her say a lot over the years is, when you will do what you can do, God will do what you can't do. So, prayer, which is just talking to God, which is what the Israelites did, prayer is the most potent weapon that we have. But prayer and faith must be mixed with the appropriate actions. This is a constant theme throughout the book of James, and probably the most famous verse along that line in that book is James chapter 2, verse 26, which says that faith without works of obedience is dead. So... Then as we continue on in Exodus, we see that the angel of God is mentioned here. And the angel of God who had been going in front of the camp of Israel now moved and went behind them. 
The pillar of the cloud moved from in front and stood behind them. And one of the footnotes in the Amplified Bible says that here, the angel of God is associated with the cloud. And if we remember this back from in uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, it said that the presence of the Lord was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they could travel by day and by night. In Genesis 16:7, it said that the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness on the road to Egypt by way of Shur. The angel of the Lord, or the angel of God, or the angel of his presence, depending on how it's worded in different passages, is readily identified with the Lord God, it says in the Amplified Bible footnote on Genesis 16:7. Said, but the angel of the Lord is a distinct person in himself from God the Father. Also worthy of note is that the angel of the Lord does not appear again after Christ came in human form in the New Testament. So therefore he must of necessity be one of the three-in-one Godhead, or what we would call the Trinity. So the angel of the Lord is the visible Lord God of the Old Testament, as Jesus Christ is of the New Testament. In other words, this is the angel of the Lord is identified as a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Jesus has always existed. He didn't just begin existing in the New Testament when he was born in the feeding trough. He's always existed. He's existed forever. He just didn't come in his actual form and be born and live through the the life the normal human life cycle um until the beginning of the new testament but here he makes an appearance as what's called the angel of the lord in a visible form in the old testament so his deity is clearly portrayed in the Old Testament, Jesus, that is. And the Cambridge Bible observes that there is a fascinating forecast of the coming Messiah, breaking through the dimness with amazing consistency, it says, at intervals from Genesis to Malachi, which encompasses the entire Old Testament. Whether it's to Abraham, whether it's to Moses, whether it's to the slave girl Hagar, whether it's to the impoverished farmer Gideon, even the humble parents of Samson had seen and talked with him centuries before the herald angels proclaimed his birth in Bethlehem, the Cambridge Bible says. There are many references to Jesus' appearance in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And so it came between it being the angel of the Lord, came between the, it probably be more accurate to say he, came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel in, in the form of this pillar of cloud and fire, depending on whether it was day or night. Even by day it was a cloud and darkness to the Egyptians, 
but it gave light by night to the Israelites. So one army did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all that night and turned the seabed into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the Israelites went into the middle of the sea on dry land, and the waters formed a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That's just an amazing image to think about. You know, can you imagine walking on land that is usually covered in water, and then you look to the right and left of you, and there's a wall of water on each side of you? Can you picture that in your head? So we can tell by how this is written that it wasn't just something that happened in the span of a few minutes. As I said, this probably took place over the span of, from the time they left Egypt until this happened, it's probably it's taken it's probably taken about a few weeks for all this to occur. I've seen a few different movie adaptations of this parting of the Red Sea, and I'm glad for them because it gives us a picture of what that might have been like for the Israelites. There's one in particular adaptation of this movie adaptation of this account that I really like, but I, I can't think of the name of it, strangely enough. TBN used to show it quite a bit. I think it was made sometime early in the 21st century, in the 2000s, but I'm not exactly sure what year it was. I might have to look that up and let you know another time if I, if I can remember. But just imagine walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and looking to your right and left and you see a wall of water on either side of you. I mean, that just doesn't happen every day. You know what I mean? So that's a once... That's not just a once-in-a-lifetime event. That's like a once-in-history event for, that those people got to experience. And it's a testimony of God's miraculous power, His faithfulness, and His covenant-keeping. God has given his word to the Jewish people, and he has an, an eternal covenant with them that can never be broken, even by them. And believe me, they've tried over the millennia. But the covenant that God made with the Israelites is an unconditional covenant. There's conditional covenants in the Bible, and there's unconditional covenants in the Bible. The covenant God made with Israel was an unconditional covenant. And you, were, if you were with me during the Genesis study, I pointed out several times where the scripture indicates that over and over again, that the, the covenant that God made with Israel was an unconditional covenant, meaning that God made it with them and he intends to keep it regardless of what they do. That doesn't mean that every Jew is going to be automatically saved. But it does mean that the promise that the land would always belong to them and that they would have a special place in the plan of God would come to fruition no matter what. And you see that, especially if you read through the book of Revelation, you see that a great deal, as well as other end times passages.
Then the Egyptians pursued the Israelites into the middle of the sea. Even all Pharaoh's horses, his war chariots, and here's that word again, his charioteers. <laughs> the fighting charioteers. Anyway. So it happened at the early morning watch before dawn that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and put them in a state of confusion. So the Lord bound, clogged, and took off their chariot wheels, making them drive heavily. So the Egyptians said, now they're getting a clue, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Go figure. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, on their war chariots, and their charioteers. I think the New Amplified Bible just uses charioteers because it doesn't want to say horsemen. What do they have against Ric Flair? No, anyway. Um, I do I do like that word, word though. The charioteers. <laughs> it's so much fun. The charioteers. I'm going to have you all saying that by the time I'm done with this. So the waters returned and covered the chariots and the charioteers and all the army of Pharaoh that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them survived. That's so like when you see in certain movies some of the Egyptians surviving that ordeal. Or the, I think even in the Prince of Egypt it shows Pharaoh surviving. No, and it says not one of them survived. But... Israelites walked on dry land in the middle of the sea, and the waters formed a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God wanted to make that clear. That's why he repeated it more than once in Scripture. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the seashore. And Israel saw that great work the Lord did against the Egyptians, and the people reverently feared the Lord and trusted in, relied on, and remained steadfast to the Lord and to his servant Moses. So if you remember that documentary I mentioned in the last episode and in the beginning of this one called Exodus Revealed, it talks about how in the spring of the year 2000, there was this man named Dr. Leonard, Dr. Leonard Muller. And he took part in an expedition through Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, this, uh, uh, excuse me, this Dr. Leonard Muller was a medical research scientist at an institute that I have, I think it's called the, Karolin, the, the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. I apologize if I messed that up as well. And he also trained in marine biology. So his skills in anal analytical research, coupled with a deep interest in biblical archaeology, had drawn him to the Middle East on many occasions. And as a member of an international team organized by Discovery Media Productions, he had come to the Gulf of Aqaba to renew his search for evidence of the Israelites' exodus journey. If you watch that documentary, The Exodus Revealed, 
it shows, it goes into a lot of detail in research and discovery, showing how the Gulf of Aqaba is the most likely location of the Red Sea Exodus crossing at the Nueva Peninsula. So in 1997, this Muller, I almost called him Robert, Robert, <coughs> hold on, <coughs> excuse me, um, I apologize again, I'm having trouble again, but uh, in 1997, this Muller, this, um, I almost called him Robert Muller, <laughs> but that's different, that's that's the, the, the Trump investigation, uh, all that nonsense. But this uh, Dr. Muller had gone to, in, in 1997, he had heard reports from other divers who claimed to have found unusual coral structures, some resembling the shapes of chariot wheels in, in the Gulf of Aqaba. Go figure. So through the coral, uh, excuse me, um, Though the coral complicates any search, it may have been instrumental in preserving the shapes of ancient artifacts because coral is a living organism that won't begin to grow on a foundation of sand or silt. Instead, coral must first attach itself to a solid object where it will sometimes conform to the shape of its host. So, for instance, if coral would grow on a wooden artifact, the wood would normally disappear in the seawaters after a time. But if you have corals growing on the wooden artifact, the coral would have the shape of the wooden artifact. So if, if coral begins to grow on a, on a wooden wheel from a chariot, then over time the coral would begin to take on the circular shape of that wooden artifact and therefore preserve it. Then the corals would consume the wooden material over periods of time, but it would still keep the shape of the wooden artifacts. So during Muller's explorations, he observed that the coral growth at Nueva differed from other parts of the Gulf of Aqaba. Unlike the coral at the northern and southern ends of Aqaba, which often form large, dense reefs, some covering many acres, the, form, the formations at Nueva Beach are generally smaller and scattered randomly across the seafloor. And other divers that are familiar with that area have compared the distribution of coral to a junkyard in the aftermath of a disaster. Sounds a little bit like the Exodus account, doesn't it? This description is fitting because among the strange formations in these waters at the Gulf of Aqaba at Nueva Beach, many display human engineering features. There are situations where you see something like an axle or a hub and something that looks like a wheel which led Muller to think that they aren't coral reefs, but coral growths on artifacts. One distinctive formation has often been identified on the seafloor.
a slender table-like structure, sometimes standing on end, with a coral-encrusted base, a straight shaft, and a circular top. It's a 90-degree angle, a right angle, between something that looks like an axle and the wheel. It is like a man-made structure with coral growth on it. And one significant discovery was not covered with coral. It's a gilded wheel with a wooden basic structure of the wheel, and it's covered with gold or electrum. It's a mixture of silver and gold, and corals have not grown on it. It's been very well preserved, although it's very fragile, which is why they don't take things like that up from out of the up from out of the ocean, also uh, up from out of the, the Red Sea. Also, the fact that Egyptian environmental law um, would prohibit such removal of such things. But it seems like the wooden content has been dissolved, so you could break you could break this if you would try to remove it, which is another reason why they don't. They prefer to use cameras and try to take pictures of this stuff to document it rather than to try to move it and possibly damage or, or destroy it. Later analysis of the video that they took, though, and you can see this if you watch the documentary, later analysis revealed that its dimensions and its design resembled four-spoked chariot wheels painted on an 18th dynasty tomb wall near the biblical date of the Exodus. So these things that they found at this Red Sea crossing resemble drawings on tomb walls from that time period when the Exodus would have occurred. When you let God's word lead the way, it clears up any confusion and doubt. The documentary sums up their findings at the end of the video this way. It says, beginning in northeastern Egypt, Egyptian records and archaeological excavations document a Hebrew slave population several centuries before the probable time of the Exodus. Next, evidence shows that the Hebrews later appeared in Canaan, the Promised Land, after centuries of bondage. Finally, historical documents and archaeological evidence locate the mountain of God, known as Mount Sinai, in northwest Arabia. It's a mountain called Jabal al-Laz, the site of the biblical Midian. A trade route leading to Midian intersected by a system of riverbeds terminating in the Aqaba coast matches biblical and historical descriptions of the Israelites' path to the Red Sea. There, in the waters of Nueva Beach, structures resembling 18th Dynasty chariot wheels lie embedded in coral on an elevated ridge that connects the Sinai and Arabian peninsulas. God parted the waters of the Red Sea and led the Israelites to freedom. Approximately 1,500 years later, he parted the Sea of Sin 
and provided a bridge for us to walk on from bondage to freedom. That bridge's name is Jesus Christ, and he is inviting you on that journey. Take him up on it while the offer remains. Thank you for joining me for this Wisdom on Wheels podcast. Again, you can reach out to me anytime at my email address, wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. So I thank you for joining me tonight, and I look forward to being with you again soon. And we will continue our journey through the book of Exodus. Thank you very much. God bless. And have a good night.